1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 12. I'm going to read all the way to verse 22, though that will not be what we cover this morning, at least not in its entirety. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. It says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. In December of 1787, a ship known as the HMS Bounty left England for the South Pacific. The commander of the ship was a man named William Bly, and the mission was to collect samples of fruit trees that could be transplanted to the Caribbean to feed the population there, primarily the slaves. So the boat was supposed to leave England, head across the Atlantic, head south around South America, and then toward the South Pacific. When they got to the tip of South America, because of harsh weather, they had to turn around. So they went back east, south of Africa, past Australia, and they landed at their destination, an island we know today as Tahiti. They, traveled for, they had traveled for over 10 months and over 25,000 miles. So as you might imagine, a five-month stay on a tropical island was welcome and had an impact on the crew. Because of the season they had arrived, they had to stay longer. Men began to fall in love with the island life. Some of them got tattoos from the, from the locals, some even married local women. Throughout that time, there was also a growing resentment toward their commander, Bly, because he would flog or whip the men who did not carry out their duties. Some even began to note what they considered paranoid tendencies. After five months, they had loaded up the pots of saplings, and the HMS Bounty left Tahiti with its crew. Three weeks later, however, the men's love for the island and their animosity toward the commander led to a revolt. There was a mutiny. 26 crew members took command of the ship. Commander Bly was taken as prisoner along with 18 other loyal crew members, and they were placed on a smaller boat and abandoned at sea with about five days' worth of food. No weapons, no guns, and I believe swords were thrown to them from a distance once they were sent away. Amazingly, Commander Bly navigated the new vessel over 3,600 miles. They lost one man when they landed with some natives. 
the rest arrived safely on an island north of Australia. He eventually made it back to England, and the Royal Navy sent out a new boat to look for the rebels. They ended on Tahiti. Those who were still on Tahiti were caught. They were taken back for trial. The rest escaped to another island about a 1,000 miles east in the South Pacific known as Pitcairn, very small island. They were never found by the British Navy. But 20 years after the HMS Bounty had originally set sail, an American boat landed on Pitcairn and discovered there a community which, as it turned out, included the one sole survivor of the original rebellion. That man said that the bounty had been stripped and burned, and then the islanders and the women who they'd taken lived there. But because of internal strife and because of sickness, every other man originally from the bounty had died. So the HMS no longer existed, and it never fulfilled its original mission all because the crew rebelled against the commander. I think most of us have an intrinsic sense that for any group to survive, there has to be some measure of unity and harmony. There has to be some mutually agreed upon structure in order for a society or a company, not just to survive, but to thrive, to do well, to succeed. And that structure has to include some measure of authority. Someone is going to have to make decisions. Someone is going to have to lead. When the relationship between those in authority and the rest of the people begins to deteriorate, then the entire structure eventually collapses. That can happen in a nation. That happens with nations. That happens in companies. That happens with families. And sadly, that happens with churches. If the relationship between the members and the leaders breaks down, and if no one is willing to do the work to repair the damage, it will not be too long before the church is destroyed and is no longer effective in carrying out its mission. That appears to be one of Paul's concerns with the church of Thessalonica. He had some concerns externally. There was persecution. It's possible that some of them had died because of persecution. But internally, you had always the threat of strife and disunity. Paul knew that. He talked to the church in Corinth, much strife. Romans was on their way because of strife. Ephesus dealt with strife. It seems every church he mentioned had some form of strife. And as this letter comes to a close, Paul gives his attention to that theme, that subject. Today, we're just going to look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 5. And what we see there is not really a command as much as as it is an an exhortation or a request. And his request concerns the relationship between the members of the church and the leaders. That, That exhortation has two main components. The first component comes in verse 12. He says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you. He wants them to to consider, to regard or esteem their leaders. The second component comes in verse 13. He wants them to esteem them highly in love. I'm going to leave our explanation and discussion of those exhortations for next week. Today, what I'd like to do is direct our attention to the leaders. Because Paul is making some assumptions as he writes. He doesn't just say, respect your leaders to the church. He says, respect these men, and he begins to give a description of them. 
He's assuming that they are a certain kind of leaders. In reading the letter, we've seen evidence of, of how Paul ministered. We saw his heart. They would have seen that with them personally. They would have seen his dedication as a leader. They would have seen him as a teacher. And it seems that he passed that on to the leaders there in Thessalonica. He assumes that's the kind of leadership that's taking place. And part of that assumption could be due to Timothy's report. Remember, he sent Timothy back, and then Timothy returned to Paul, and he gave him an update on the church. And it seems that he was able to tell them the, the church as well, the structure is, is good. It seems like there's not a problem that Paul is directly addressing as much as a problem he'd like to prevent. What kind of leaders does Paul expect a church to have? That's what we're going to think about today. I want you for yourself to think about your own leadership. Whether you consider yourself a leader or not, you do have influence over others. Even if you don't have a formal or official position, you are affecting the lives of the people around you. That's God's design. So how do you do that better? If you are in some recognized form of leadership, I trust this lesson will be helpful. It should be a good challenge for us, particularly for us moms who lead Dads who lead your wives, parents who lead your children. Those of us who teach in a church context, whether that's formally kids or adults, we have to learn from the Apostle Paul. We want to learn from his letter to the Thessalonians. And most directly, those of us who lead in the church, whether it's a deacon ministry or specifically a pastor elder ministry, or those of you who aspire to do that, we need to understand and we need to be regularly reminded what kind of leader does God want? Another important reason to understand the role of leaders is because even if you don't expect to find yourself in a position of leadership, you are expected as a member to take part in affirming who your leaders are. So you should know what it is God is looking for in leaders. Kids, you should listen today and go, that's the type of leadership my parents should be living out. And you want to have a nice conversation, ask them how they're doing. What are the qualities leaders should Exhibit. I'm going to give you four this morning, just looking at verses 12 through 13, four answers to that question. The first answer, the first thing God is looking for is faithful exertion. If you want to just do one word, put exertion, E-X-E-R-T-I-O-N. What does it mean to exert yourself? It means to try hard, to work hard, to, 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 to sweat to put effort into something. Look at the first description Paul gives of church leaders in verse 12. He says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor. Those who labor. The Greek word is kopiao. It means to work to the point of exhaustion. It means you work hard. It means you sweat. It means there is diligence. There's a reason we use the word labor to describe a woman who's about to have a baby, because that's hard work. And we need to contrast that with the cultural idea, and you may have it in your mind, of authority. People, some, some people's idea of authority is, I get to sit in my lawn chair, drinking lemonade, bossing everybody else around, and they have to do what I tell them. That's not Christ's picture of leadership. I remember saying to my dad as a kid, I remember telling him, I can't wait for the day I have kids and they do all my work for me. And I said that without the best heart because I didn't understand that just because I was given chores doesn't mean my dad's doing no work. Parents, we understand that God did not give us kids just so they can do all the work. 
elders, we have to understand that God did not give us a church so we could boss members around while we sit back and rest. Listen to Paul's word to the elders in Ephesus. This is from Acts 20. He says, his own hands ministered to his own needs. He ministered to those who were with him. He says, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul understood who he was. He understood his authority as an apostle of Christ, and he'd also know he was a slave of the Lord Jesus, sent to serve, sent to minister. He worked hard as an example to his own church and as an expression of his love. Nobody was going to accuse the apostle Paul of being lazy. And particularly us men, this is what our wives and our family need to see in our lives. This is what our, our kids need to see. It's not just that we work hard from nine to five when they don't see us. It's that a defining mark of our life as leaders is diligence. That doesn't mean we can't rest. That's important. You need to rest so that you're more productive. But the defining characteristic of our life should be diligence. We should be men who produce, who do things. If you're seeking to serve others as a mom, as a dad, as a leader, if you're seeking to serve others for the glory of God, you will be tired. The moms with little kids, you walk around, and go, I'm tired. And you sometimes can think, what am I doing wrong? And you may not be doing anything wrong. If you're doing it right, you'll be tired. J. Oswald Sanders wrote this once. If a Christian is not willing to rise early, he's speaking to primarily pastors, but we can apply it. If a Christian is not willing to rise early and work late, to expend greater effort in diligent study and faithful work, that person will not change a generation. Fatigue is the price of leadership. That's what he said. Fatigue is the price of leadership. And then listen to this sentence. He says, mediocrity is the result of never getting tired. Mediocrity is the result of never getting tired. In other words, if you don't want to work hard, if you don't want to get better, if you don't want to tire yourself, you will not be, you will not excel at what you're doing. That's a pretty challenging statement for all of us. Paul echoes that again in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15.10. He's, he's comparing himself to the other apostles, and he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So you have this, this paradox, if, if you will, of, of his work, of his work ethic. He understood on the one hand that God had gifted him. He needed divine enablement. But he also knew that he needed personal exertion. I worked hard. He labored over the people in his care. To the Galatians, he says, I'm in agony till Christ is formed in you. He used the word to describe childbirth. There is a, a mental and a physical fatigue that characterized the Apostle Paul. And he knew that God would enable him to persevere day after day. So if you want to be faithful and if you want to be effective as a leader, as a minister for the glory of Christ, don't be lazy. Exert energy. It takes a, a prolonged diligence. It's not just, I worked really hard today, now I get two months off. 
Many times it's going to take physical effort to serve others. Other times it's going to take the mental effort that it takes to, to sit in your seat and study and prepare and focus. That's the calling of spiritual leadership. You need to be disciplined and you need to be focused. You need faithful, continual exertion. Kids, you're in school, whether at home or in public school, private school, you're learning things, but you need to recognize that you're not just learning the subjects that you're being taught. It's not just about math and grammar and history. And and parents, you need to understand, it's not just your kids learning about these subjects. They're also learning how to work, how to struggle. That was a big part of seminary for me. Yes, we learn Bible knowledge, we learn theology, we, we talk about preaching, we learn biblical languages, but you're also learning to work. You have papers that are due that force you to work. Many guys, if they, many guys who didn't drink coffee start drinking coffee in seminary. That's part of the education. That, that's part of the preparation for ministry. We learn to work hard. And you see the same idea in the middle of verse 13, because he says you should respect them, you should honor them, and then verse 13, esteem them and highly in love because, again, of their work. Leaders work. Maybe others don't see it. Maybe they don't appreciate it, but that's what leaders do. The second characteristic of a faithful leader is personal connection. So there's faithful exertion And then there is personal connection. You see this in the very next phrase of verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor, and then he says, among you. There's a sphere of their labor. There's a location. They labor among you. The work of a spiritual leader is not supposed to be detached from people. I do the work, I send it to you, and you don't even know who I am. It's supposed to include physical and meaningful contact with others. You're there. Back in chapter 2, Paul described his ministry toward the Thessalonians, and he said, I am like a spiritual mother, a spiritual father. Moms and dads who want to raise their kids and give good things to their kids but never see them, we call them, what do we call them, absentee moms, absentee fathers. That wasn't Paul. He loved them. He had an affection for them. He wasn't working at a distance. He had a personal connection with them. That personal connection is the reason he sent Timothy. I need an update. How are they doing? That personal connection is what motivated Paul's ministry. He longed to see them again. Let me finish what I need to do so I can get back to you. Think about the differences between how the Pharisees saw themselves in relation to the people and how Jesus saw himself and related to the people. The Pharisees said, no, 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 we're not sinners like them. They're unclean. We're elevated. We're, we're above society. You got a problem? Send it to my secretary. Jesus came, and they hated him. The Pharisees hated him because he said it was a friend of sinners. He went to eat in their homes. He touched lepers. He ministered to them. God never intended the body of Christ to minister from afar. He intended us to be personally invested in other people's lives. He intended the church to be made up of meaningful relationships. We lose that now, especially in a digital age. We live in an age where you hear pastors and hear sermons online. I praise God that more solid content is going out because of that. But you also have people now who hear great content online and say, that's my church. That's my pastor. 
He might be a pastor. He's not your pastor. There are seminaries, there are pastors today who actually teach. If you want to be effective in your ministry, you need to keep a distance between yourself and the people. That's a lie about church ministry. And it's the opposite of the heart of a true shepherd. I don't know who I first heard say it, but there's a saying that says, a true shepherd smells like sheep. He smells like sheep. He is among them. That's the phrase he uses. He's not just ministering for their good. He's not ministering for the, for the sake of, of an organization or a brand. He spends time. He is accessible. He makes himself available. And that's the essence of the incarnation. Christ came out of heaven to dwell among his people. And we need to express that same kind of heart. In James 5, there is instruction. there are instructions to a sick person. He says, if you're sick, he says, call your elders. They'll pray for you. They'll minister to you. Reach out to the elders. Let them know there's a problem. That, that kind of command assumes the elders are there. They're accessible. They're among the people. There's a personal connection. That same phrase, 1 Peter 5, speaks to elders, verses 1 and 2, each, once in each verse. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, it says the same phrase. Among them. The elders are among you. They're, they're part of the church. They're connected to the rest of the people. The guy on the radio, you can't see into his life. You can't see his home. You can't see how he interacts with his kids outside of a Sunday morning. You want personal connection. I'm not saying don't listen to those guys. I'm saying don't confuse what God's intending to produce through a connected church. And so just in this principle, how do you apply that as a leader? It means you step into the lives of the people you minister to. As a parent, hopefully those are things we're already doing. It's not just generic teaching. It's specific teaching. We want to foster, we want to nurture relationships with our kids. We need to get to know them individually. Yes, they're children, but they're people made in the image of God with value and honor. If you want to minister to your coworkers, if you want to minister to your extended family, it's not just about posting something online that they can read at their leisure. You need to know them personally to be most effective. Step into their life. Non-Christians in your life are not obstacles to God's purpose for your life. They're the mission. So you find ways to open your life. You, you, maybe you have lunch with them. Invite them to your home for dinner. Invite them to your kids' games or go to their kids' games. Make those connections. That's how you step into someone's life for the glory of God. Paul showed up, he lands in Thessalonica, he's going city to city. He's not just there to preach and hopefully a crowd gathers and then leave. He's there to gather a church and to care. He would have stayed much longer hadn't, if he hadn't had to flee for his life. But he cared about them as individuals. He formed personal relationships with them. In chapter 2 of the letter, we saw this already, verse 8, he says he has an affection for them. He said he longed to see them, and he said, I'm ready to share with you not just the gospel, but my own self, my own life. That was his ministry. We need to be doing the same for the glory of God if we want to reach our neighbors, if we want to reach the children in our lives, if we want to reach our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Christ never intended church leaders to serve from an ivory tower. He wants personal connections. That's what Jesus told the disciples. You guys know the way the world functions in leadership? They, they, they lord it over those, not you. You serve. You wash feet. 
You connect. One of the passages that stands out to me every time I, I, I think about this topic is the ending of 2 John and 3 John. This is the Apostle John. He's from Christ. He's, he's, writing, them script, he's writing to them Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit. And yet he says, there's a lot more I'd like to say to you, but I'm not going to do it with paper and ink. I'd rather tell you face to face. Because he cared about connections. He understood the value. Let's go to number three. The third characteristic of spiritual leadership. Again, he's not explicitly commanding it. There are other passages that do that, but he's assuming it. This is a healthy church. This is what should be happening. Number three, Biblical instruction. Biblical instruction. This is probably the most obvious characteristic when we think about leaders or pastors in the church. They teach. They direct. He says, continuing verse 12, they are those who labor among you and they are those who are over you in the Lord. It's speaking of authority. That's connected to the idea of an overseer. There's leadership there. There's direction. But he says they're over you in the Lord. In the Lord. There are a couple ideas contained in that phrase. First of all, it's the recognition that Christ has placed them in that position. We studied that in Ephesians 4. Christ's gift to the church includes pastors and teachers. They're there to, to equip the saints, to prepare them for ministry. We could say the same about every spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 12 says all, every gift is from the Spirit of Christ. It goes to a believer for the benefit of the church. This is all in the Lord. But a second idea contained in that phrase, in the Lord, is that that authority has a limit. It only goes so far. My authority over you, if you're a member of our church, my authority over you as, as one of your pastors only goes as far as the Lord has determined, and that is what the Word of God tells us. I have an authority, pastors have an authority, but it's not inherent. There's nothing special about me as a man that gives me authority. I have a derived authority because I'm teaching the word of God. I can't tell you what color to paint your house. I can't, I can't mandate you to buy this kind of car instead of that kind of car. But I can speak authoritatively from the word of God when dealing with issues that it directly addresses or even indirectly connects to. If you come to me and you say, hey, I got this decision to make, I want to honor God, what should I do? I don't have the liberty to start making things up and giving my opinion and saying, you have to do this because I'm your pastor. So we, we might do that as friends, as a brother. Hey, here's my thought. Here's what I think you should do. But as a pastor, my authority ends when I stop speaking the word of God. My, my, the place, my starting point is the Bible. Well, what does this say? What, what are we supposed to do? And then how do we apply it? And hopefully we remind ourselves that as leaders and as parents. There are all kinds, we were talking about this yesterday, all kinds of things you're going to teach your kids, educationally, culturally, and every family is going to have to decide what you give. To a different degree, you'll emphasize different things. But the one thing no parent can neglect is to teach their children the Word of God. That's the duty of a parent. Ephesians 6, 4, most of you know it. Bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In other words, you need to teach your kids the book. And we don't just teach it as a storybook. We don't just teach it as, as, as a theology book. We teach it as what it is, the true and authoritative word of God. We teach them the plan of God in, in, in creating man, in redeeming man, and in ultimately rescuing us from sin. 
You might remember back in chapter 2, again, verse 13, he, he says, He thanked God constantly because they received the word of God. They accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Paul never lost sight of that mandate. There are all kinds of things he might have done to help and to love people, but his job as their leader was to teach the word of God, and that he did with authority. That's his responsibility, to give biblical instruction. I think it was Steve Lawson who, whom I first heard say, God only had one son, and he made him a preacher. Jesus did a lot of things. He healed, he touched, he ministered, he, he provided for, for a wedding. But he said, I came to preach, to teach. You, you may not do it in a formal sense, but that's why we're here as the church. To give the truth. First Timothy 3 says the church is the pillar and support of the truth. That's what we do. That's what makes us distinct. The rest of the world, they do humanitarian things. We can do humanitarian things. We can do good things. But the distinct mission of the church is to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. We baptize and we teach people to observe all that Christ has commanded. So spiritual leadership must include teaching. You can do that in a sermon. You can do that in a classroom with kids, with adults. You can do that in a counseling session. You can do that in an informal conversation. But that's the characteristic of a leader. You teach the Bible. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 are the two passages that give us uh, explicit requirements for elders. What do, you, what do you need to be to be a pastor, to be a teacher, to be a, a, an elder in the church? He says... 1 Timothy 3, an elder must be able to teach. That's part of what he's going to be doing. Titus 1 says he needs to be able to teach sound doctrine and then defend it against the false teaching. That's the role. And so how sad it is when a so-called pastor will stand up in front of a church and rather than feed his flock with the word of God, he just spits out his opinions it could be opinions about religious things, could be opinions about political things, could be his opinion about media and entertainment. It could be enjoyable to the people, it could entertain the people. But if it's not the word of God, he hasn't done his job as a pastor. We understand there are biblical topics that are going to address political issues and everyday life issues. But again, the church is not here as an earthly entity. We're an outpost of heaven. We're called to preach the truth. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Grow them. You, your word is truth. That's what leaders do. They give biblical instruction. The fourth and final description of a spiritual leader is this. Watchful correction. So we've got faithful exertion, personal connections, biblical instruction, and lastly, watchful correction. Watchful correction. As a dad, I can't just teach my kids certain things. Don't touch the stove. Don't hide in the dryer. Don't, don't stick, your fork, stick the fork in the socket. I can't just teach them that and then let them do whatever they want. Right? The day will come where they'll do whatever they want, but... In the young ages, I have responsibility. They are in my care. I need to keep a watchful eye over them. I need to be vigilant. Yesterday, we're at a, we're at a birthday party. Time comes for the piñata. You tell every kid there, don't move. Don't go in until we tell you to go in. Why? 
because the kid with a stick has no idea they're coming in and they're all going to get with a stick. And kids have a very tough time resisting free candy on the floor that someone else might take before me. So we tell them that. We give them the warning, but still every parent is watching, right? And Eric has to jump in because at some point the, the, the dam broke loose and the kids didn't care that they weren't sent. They're getting candy and he had to grab the stick. That, that, that's part of what it means to be a watchful parent. Well, that's what's contained at the end of verse 12. It's, it's watchfulness and it's a type of correction. He says, again, verse 12, respect those, they labor among you, they're over you in the Lord. Then he says, the end of verse 12, they admonish you. They admonish you. Some translations say give instruction, which is related, but, but I do prefer admonish here. To admonish someone is to warn them. It's to push them back on the proper path. Hey, hey, hey get back this way. The Greek verb is nuthateo. Nuthateo is made up of two Greek word, ver, words, nous, which means uh, mind, and then tithemi, which means to set straight. So the idea there is you're setting someone's mind right. You know, if someone's really out of line, you might say, I got to go set them straight. You can do that in a bad way. You can do it in a good way. I, I need to bring something back. I need to fix you. You're, you're fixated on something that's wrong or you're not fixated on something that's right. That's the idea behind this word, nuthateo, admonish. You, you, you take a person and they're not considering their course of action. And so they need to be cautioned. They need to be warned for their own protection. I need to say something. I need to do something. That's the heart of a shepherd. If a sheep is in some sort of imminent danger, if a sheep is beginning to wander toward a threat, the shepherd can't just sit back finishing his sandwich and say, that's okay, we'll see what happens. He goes. He steps in, and he doesn't do it with a self-righteous authoritarian tone. What's wrong with you? I told you never to do this. Get back over here. He's supposed to do it with gentleness. He's supposed to do it like a father picking up his son when he's about to step or fall down the stairs, a toddler. Galatians 6 says, when someone is caught in a trespass, they're, they're trapped in sin, we restore them in a spirit of gentleness. That's the heart of Christ. We're going to see in the weeks to come that this call to warn others, to correct others, is, is one for everybody. We're all called to do that in the church, but it is an especially important task for leaders. The ministry of Christian teachers is a ministry of warning and protecting. There is to be loving, watchful correction. I don't know how long ago it was, maybe over a year now, uh, a video of someone's ring camera of a lady knocking on the, the doorbell, just kept pressing the ring doorbell. Hello? Hello? Is anybody there? And it was like 2.30 in the morning. And she's, you could tell she's visibly cold. She just, it looked like she just got out of bed. Hello, hello, hello. And then she says, your garage is on fire. Well, now you realize she's not just being annoying. She's doing what she's supposed to do as a neighbor. To say, you know what? They're probably sleeping. I don't want to bother them. That's not being kind. That's not being pleasant. That's not being polite. That's an act of hatred. That's a, that would be a lack of love. There, there's a problem there. Someone headed to eternal hell has a problem. A brother or sister in Christ headed towards severe spiritual danger has a problem. And to shy away from telling them the truth about sin and, and salvation in Christ, that's, that's a lack of love. 
We got to remember that this is why we're here. If you're, if you're visiting us today, you know, what, what, what is church about? What does this church teach? You have to understand that what the Bible says is that you have not, if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, God loves you enough that he compels us to tell you his message. You're headed for eternal condemnation. Because God has a standard, and the standard is perfection. And if you fall short of that standard, you will be judged forever. And all of us were in that state. But one man came, and he met that requirement, the man, Christ Jesus. He's God in human flesh, and not only did he perfectly live up to God's standard, he died on the cross, killed like a criminal, which he didn't deserve. But he did it to satisfy the righteous requirement of God. He came to trade places with sinners, and then he rose from the dead in victory, proving that his message was true. So if you turn from your sin, if you trust in him, he'll save you. He'll make you his own. And then as a church, we'd love to make that proclamation public. That's what we do through baptism and membership, bringing you into part of the church. Come, come talk to us. You have questions about that. But that's the message. It's a warning. It begins with what you have to say the bad news before you give the good news. Nobody likes to be told they're doing something wrong. But we do it in love because that's the heart of Jesus. That's what Jesus did with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. She'd got five different guys she was married to. Now she's with the sixth guy. They're not married. He exposes her sin, but then he tells her about salvation in him, the Messiah. Spiritual leaders will warn those in their care. They act for their protection, and we need to do the same for the people God has placed under us. So if you care about the church, if you want our church to be healthy and effective in the mission of Christ, you need to care about our leadership. And you need to care about the kind of leader or influencer you are in the church. These are principles you see scattered all throughout Scripture, particularly with the Apostle Paul. So I want to close by reading one related passage. These are the final two verses of Colossians 1. It's Paul writing... So you're going to see the same principles. He loves the sheep. He exerts energy. He, he makes personal connections. He teaches the word. And he's there to graciously, loving, correct, and warn. Here's how he puts it. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Speaking of his role as a minister of Christ, he says, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's the heart we want. Tomorrow's likely a holiday for most of you, so you don't have to go into work. But Tuesday, most of us, we're going back to work. And you wake up and you say, oh, it's Tuesday. Back to work. And the immediate next thought should be, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for your forgiveness and your grace. You call us to work hard and we're so often lazy. Lazy in mind, lazy in body. We would rather be served than to serve others. 
We would rather leave the work for others than do the work ourselves. Give us hearts to work. Help us as parents instill a, a heart of, of diligence, not of legalistic. We thank you that we, we're not burdened by our sin anymore in Christ. But we do want to work to honor him and to give him thanks for all that he's done for us. Forgive us for the times where we would rather not be made uncomfortable through personal connections. We'd rather just keep our distance and not step into someone's life. We'd rather not invest the time or the money it takes to, 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 to strengthen friendships. Give us opportunities. Open those doors. Help us connect more with one another in the church and with those in the world that you've, whom you've placed us next to so they can see our good works and glorify our Heavenly Father. Father, forgive us for the times where we're quiet, when there's a door for us to speak your truth and we say nothing. Forgive our weakness. Forgive our love of comfort when we fail to, to warn someone else about the danger that awaits them because of their sin. We pray you protect our little ones, our teens, our men, our women, our husbands, our, our, our wives as we, as we stay home or go out to the workplace. We're facing a world that hates you, a world that rejects you, a world that does not want to hear the truth of Christ, and yet we are called to give them a warning to be saved from this perverse generation. Give us that love, give us that urgency. And we pray that through our efforts, your grace would work by your spirit to bring more people to humble, repentant faith. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.